Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese, specialty cheese from Switzerland made with heart and passion. For more information, visit meusa.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, hello, and welcome to Cutting the Curd on Heritage Radio Network. Uh, for those of you keeping score at home, I am Aaron Foster, and uh, I'm your new host. I was introduced a few weeks back, and I'm really excited to be with you on our first show. Uh, just a little background on me. I own Foster Sundry, which is a artisan cheese counter, whole animal butcher, and specialty grocer and cafe in Bushwick, Brooklyn, just uh you know, less than a half mile down the road from our recording studio here. Uh, and my guest today is going to be Glenn Hills. Um, Glenn is sort of cheese royalty. Um, he's got it in his blood. And uh, I'm really excited. He's just a wealth of knowledge and has been doing this, I think, more or less his whole life. Thank you, Aaron. And congratulations on your host Oriel debut. Oh, yes. <laughs> is, is that, is that what it's, it's called? Hostatorial? The, the yeah, word, I think so. Yeah. yeah. It's great. Yes. Um, why don't you tell us just a little bit about yourself real quick before we dive into our show? Okay, so I grew up in cheese, in a way, um, via a family business. Just all in, in the crib that was just full, <laughs> filled with cheese. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to put my finger on the retail experience or like the, the years because I, I started sampling when I was like four or five <laughs> and, um, and that, that was really my gig until I was like in sixth grade. And then I started interacting with customers more, um, and cutting cheese and stuff. That's when you were, you, know, you really cut it at that point. <laughs> That's when I was cutting the curd. Cool. Yeah. And then, I mean, I guess probably the most relevant experience to, uh, this show is going to be your most recent yeah, to this show, definitely. Um, I, I worked at an importer of cheese from Europe, mostly um, the Alps, Switzerland. Um, it was Columbia Cheese. Um, awesome, awesome list um, and people. And yeah, that, um, that was a super dreamy job. Um, yeah, and cool. we'll and talk I guess, about that. Yeah, we might as well now like uh, erase the secret of what this show is going to be about, which <laughs> is... Um, I think we kicked around a few names for it. Cow to counter, um, fromage to your face. Uh, essentially, we're going to be talking about supply chain. And I, like, I can hear eyes. I don't know if eyes make a sound when they glaze over, but I think I can hear it right now when someone says, we're going to talk about the supply chain for half an hour. Um, but I think the reason we chose this show as a topic is because it's actually super interesting. And I think a lot of folks, I mean, even a lot of cheese people don't really understand or, or really have a full grasp of how complex, how efficient and how important the supply chain is to get cheese from the farm. Um, you know, let's take, I think in this show, we're going to talk mostly about say rural farms in Western Europe mm -hmm. to a random cheese counter in Brooklyn or in California. Um, 
or even in 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 Japan or or farther flung locales. Yeah, we you know we each know what we know, and I I always found learning more about the supply chain as a retailer was an empowering thing. Um, it just helped kind of paint um, paint the path, so to speak, and it made it it made the product feel less like a commodity. This Despite already thinking that the product was like super um, romantic, right? And it's it's also interesting, I think, because when we talk about supply, I think when people hear the word supply chain, they really just think like widgets being made in China and shipped to in big boxes across the ocean on big freighters into American factories or whatever. And I think that it's interesting because there are certain parts of that that are analogous to what happens with cheese, but then. Because cheese, particularly, I think we're going to be mostly speaking about artisan cheese, mm-hmm. um, is such a living, breathing thing. It's actually a lot more complicated than that. Um, and pretty remarkable that it works at all, to be honest. <laughs> I think that's the real surprise. Um, so when we, I guess when we talk about, just to define our terms here, like so when we're talking about supply chain, what you know, what does that entail for you? Well, so I know in this episode we're talking about it in terms of uh, milk to, to table or milk to mouth. Milk to mouth. Great. I love it. (laughs) I mean, typically I consider the supply chain happening from, um, you know, post post production. Like that's what we're talking about. Um, once the product is ready, then everything from there to the mouth. Um, and it is, I mean, think of a chain or think of a Rube Goldberg machine. Right. Right. (laughs) Right? It sort of is like that. (laughs) It's like mousetrap. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not necessarily like, the whole system waiting for that one ball to arrive, right? The the lever might not snap until 3,000 balls are in that little <laughs> cup. <laughs> right, exactly. And there's many more just behind it and just behind that. Yes. Um, totally. And I, I think, um, you know, when we talk about... There's just so many other shows that we've done at Cutting the Curd um, that have really gotten into, like, the nitty-gritty of cheese making. So I think we really just... We don't need to focus as much on that here today. Yeah, um, you can like listen, to, you can scroll through the archives for, for that kind of detail. Um, so, I mean, why don't we start talking about Gruyere and, and just as a, just throwing out a, a cheese that comes from Western Europe that, that I think has a fairly interesting supply chain. Cool. Um, and I know it's one that you, that you're quite familiar with. Um, yeah. let's, you know, where does Gruyere like begin its journey to, like I sell Gruyere on my counter. Yeah. Um, you know, we sell it right down the street. There's probably some on the menu here at, uh, at Roberta's. Um, so, you know, how does it start its journey to, to my counter? Yeah. So, you know, we're starting at milk. We could even go back to inputs and talk about the land and feed. Oh, man, I didn't, um, even... I think that's another podcast series. Yeah. Actually. We should, maybe we should make that like the 201 of this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I like that. And, um, uh, so starting at the milk, um, in Europe, um, and you know, I, mostly thinking of um, village dairies in the Alps right now. Um, But, you know, milk really regardless can come directly from the farmer. Um, There are operations so small where milk is bought and farmers just carry milk cans over on carts. Right. Um, They're also like like your next, like Ned Flanders is like bringing, he's got the cows and Homer's making the cheese and he just like, here you yeah. go. Like, ho. Maybe closer. Like yeah. you're standing at the dairy and you can like hear a barnyard door open. <laughs> <laughs> and it's that, it's that like on the property. It's still a neighbor. And so if we're defining terms, like this would be the difference between like farmstead cheese and then I guess not farmstead cheese. This would be, yeah. I mean in that like farmstead artisan industrial 
breakdown. Three-way paradigm. Yeah. This would be artisan because they're not raising the animals. But, um, you know, village dairy, I think it's more specific because it's talking about, um, obviously, the village and, um, yeah, just speaking to that um, small economy. Right. So you're, so we're sitting here where uh, we've got a dairy, which is just going to be like a cheese making that all that guy does is make the cheese. Yeah. So it, it increases specialization that way. That's right. what I love about it is the farmers just get to focus on their cows. Well, I feel like in America and, and right. the cheese makers just make cheese. And that's, that's enough. If, if anything, that's like their ideal. Because one person can get super good at what they do. Yeah. And as then opposed not to be trying distracted. to tackle it all. Yeah. So like an, a different example would be like, I think a lot of people, when they think of American cheesemakers, you're thinking of like the farmer who also, he's got the animals, maybe, or she oftentimes in America, um, raises, creates the feed, grows the feed, raises the animals, milks them, and then makes the cheese on the farm and then ages it and packages and sells it all in one place. So many things. So many things. It's so hard. And Europe has like long since kind of, for the most part, moved away from that model. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the Fermier thing is super romantic and that is its own thing. That's And those cheeses are distinguishable and unique. But um, All right, so let's just yeah. because we're we got to well, yeah, no, we we're just keep the, moving. So the uh, so cheese. So we're at the basically the cheese. Uh, the first step would be, say, the milk going from the the folks that milk the animals yeah get gets taken to the dairy which is usually quite close yeah and then the cheese gets made in the dairy correct so and from there the cheese could be aged right on site right or or uh, it could go to some kind of regional aging facility um either i mean if it's an aop cheese it's going to be owned by an effinor that's like in the aop um right aop it, being like a the 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 Swiss consortium or so, French yeah, consortium. Yeah. 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 Or the PDO or whatever. AOC, yeah, PDO. Whatever country you're in. GTFO. Yeah. yeah. It's one of those is not real, but. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that is typically overseen by that, that transportation, since we're talking about supply chains, is typically overseen either by the producer or the person aging the cheese. Um, from what I've seen, there's not usually a third party at that step. Right. So like either the producer puts it in his van, drives it over or the affineur, the maturer, the cheese ager, you know, sends over her truck, picks it up and then brings it back to the place where they're aging the cheese. Yeah. And I feel like size is important to think of here because like we're, you know, if we're talking about Gruyere, these wheels when they're first made are like big floppy tires, greenish yellow tires that weigh a hundred pounds or more. Yeah. They're actually required to stay at the site of production. So at the dairy for three months before they move right. to the Afinor. And so most dairies probably only have enough space for about three months worth of cheese. Cause it doesn't make sense for them to have more. Yeah. That's, that's right. Um, so then the cheese goes to like, so driver comes, picks it up and is taking it over to this, this Afinor, this cheese ager. And yeah. this is where it's going to spend like, of all the time in the supply chain, as if we're talking about a hard cheese, this is where it's going to like spend the most time at this apartment, right? Yeah, with Gruyere, um, it's either going to spend uh, a minute, like three months to make it a total of six months, or it will keep going and get up to two years. You know, usually right. not more than that. Um, and like those places can be crazy because they're holding. Like there's, they're not, there totally. aren't small versions of this, 100, right? Hundred thousand wheels. That's yeah, so many wheels. Yeah, it's leveraging. Uh, 
Yeah, this cheese is like it's, it's a business. It's it's a bank. Right. And I know in Italy they uh, they still accept like wheels of cheese as collateral um for for loans and and things like that. It works. That's just yeah, because you know, it's 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 just sitting sitting hanging out in a bank. You might you might as well put gold away. Um, and for the cost of some of these cheeses, you probably could do better with cheese. Um, so it's hanging out here. Um, and again, it's not really doing much. So let's, let's just move, I think to the next part of the supply chain. Cause this is kind of where it starts to get more interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. After it, let's say it's like this, the French affiner has gone around and she's tasted all of her cheeses and she's like, all right, this one is ready. Well, let's talk. Well, so I think it's, it's important to note that she's not, if we're assuming that she's coming to America, right? She's not saying it's ready to eat now. She's really, she's got to already be thinking about the supply chain and where this cheese is going. Yeah. So if the cheese is going to a local shop in Switzerland, like you want a cheese that's ready to eat right then. But if it's going to spend another three months, two months in the supply chain, you don't want the cheese to be over the hill by the time it gets to customers. That's it. You're a bit of a fortune teller. You're looking into the future and making sure it's on target to hit a profile two months from that point. Right. And you would say, and you have to really know where each wheel is headed. And I think that's like one yeah. of the great skills of these agers. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And we're also like, we're standing on the shoulders of giants in terms of packaging, in terms of just like, right. Uh, this stuff is already figured out um, in a lot of ways. And particularly um, in Switzerland where it's so sophisticated, they're using lasers and ultrasound and water picks to slice cheese to exact weights. The models are there. Like we're, we have the luxury of just kind of focusing on our palates and thinking about the future. Now we don't have to reinvent the wheel and think like okay like is this type of cardboard going to kill the rind of this cheese right yeah and it's super right it's super interesting and i think uh that's that's a it's certainly something that i've seen american cheesemakers struggle with because they don't have this history of making cheese the same cheese year after year after year and and having the opportunity to have tried all of these different and sort of iterate and evolve the right packaging they're just like oh i made a new cheese i'm calling it bazinga and it is a wash rind and I don't know what to put it oh in God, or yeah. what shape it's going to be in or whether it'll bump around and hit the sides and lose its, its texture or whatever. That's right. Um, so I think it's, so certainly at this point, let's say we've decided the cheese is coming to me. Uh, the, like this is a wheel of Gruyere that's like earmarked for a foster sundry. Cool. Um, yeah. <laughs> Which uh, we have done in the past, but we don't do for, um, Gruyere specifically, but we have certainly done for other cheeses. Yeah. Um, w- well, you know what? Let's take a break real quick. It's time for a 15 or it's time for uh, just a quick break. We'll be back in a moment, uh, with more from Glenn and we'll continue to nerd out. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Emmy cheese, specialty cheese from Switzerland made with heart and passion. Since the early 1900s, Emmy has been a passionate supporter of farmers, cheesemakers, and family tradition. They believe in sustainable agriculture and respect for the people, land, and animals that make their business possible. Remaining dedicated to tradition, they strive to lead the industry in innovation, ensuring they bring you only the highest quality, best-tasting cheese from Switzerland. Emmy is best known for importing more than 80% of the Swiss Gruyere into the United States, but that's not to overshadow their other specialty cheeses, including Kaltbach cave-aged cheeses, Der Scharfe Max, Appenzeller, Tête de Moine, and traditional Emmentaler. 
For more information, visit meusa.com. Welcome back to Cutting the Curd. Uh, again, I'm Aaron Foster. This is my inaugural show. Um, very happy to have you here. We are discussing the supply chain, and don't change the channel. It is super interesting, I promise. Um, and I've got Glenn Hills with me, and we're going to go ahead and pick up where we left off, which was we had just decided that this Wheel of Gruyere is ready to come from a vault blasted out of the side of a mountain in switzerland to my shop in brooklyn and it's in that mountain right now where's it go next (laughs) Um, well it can go to a variety of places if it's coming to the u.s it's probably going to head to paris um, or that general vicinity because that's where the that's that's the spoke in the wheel when it comes to western europe Uh, so like if it's basically the sort of midpoint between where most of the cheese is made is that like is that the general idea or that that's the general idea okay yeah yeah that's a good center point i guess um, france itself has a lot of cheese too that wants to leave and come to the u.s yeah for some reason they just decide to make it there the tent there yeah. okay so it yeah. goes to paris yeah so there's this town called ranchi and uh it's ranchi ranchi <laughs> <laughs> i think Aaron, you might have to help me with this. no no i, I like that that sounds right of uh, r-u-n-g-i-s okay and uh, it's it's a little bit like Hunts Point here uh, that we have here in New York City in the Bronx. In the Bronx. Uh, functions as Right, and Hunts Point is a place in, place in New York where it turns out that something like 85% of all imported food, some ridiculous amount, like will travel through on its journey to somewhere else in the U.S.? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and like Hunts Point, it's, it's predominantly business to business. Okay. Um, like I, I wouldn't go shopping for like my Thanksgiving dinner at Hunts yeah, Point. Yeah, I don't get that vibe as much. Like you need a pass to get in. Um, I know there's some like consumer facing stuff there, but the, you know, the majority of the business is business to business. It's uh, importers, exporters, cheese makers, uh, distributors, brokers um, who set up shop there. And it's not just cheese, market, right? And they sling cheese and there's a bit of everything yeah. there. Um, but cheese does have its own hall or series huge, of right? halls. Yeah, it's like airplane hangers. But right. um, really like clean. Pretty, <laughs> really <pristine>. clean airplane <laughs> And then just like cheese on every palate. And it's cheese from like every nook of Western Europe. So you'll see... You'll see Carefilly. Um, you'll walk 10 feet. You'll see um, some like super obscure German thing. Next right. To Manchego, Brie, Parm. Yeah. All of stuff. Yeah. 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 But also a little tiny artisan stuff as well. Yeah. So it's, it's basically like everything stops there on its way out of the country and like it stops in like that the town. TSA. It doesn't necessarily hang out inside the market. Gotcha. Um, other shops and players in the game have set up in that vicinity. So basically like in the same parking lot as the market. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Um, so they're different like consolidators or exporters. Uh, and they're like tailgaters. Both. Yeah. They're tailgaters. <laughs> yeah. They open up this giant door. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's just this party um, of of cheese so like and that and this is where the port is also or is near the port so the port is um in the north la havre Havre. (laughs) h-a-v-r-e all right Uh, and yeah that's on the like english channel like the the ships that eventually come here they kind of run the north sea so so they start up in rotterdam rotterdam Rotterdam, yeah antwerp 
in uh so they're they're basically stopping and they're like dropping off and picking up yeah or are they mostly always picking up uh oh they're they're mostly always picking up yeah i'm sorry what kind of ship are we talking about here yes we're talking about a large vessel that holds like three thousand containers um maybe more the average i was looking at just like statistics and the average last year is 3400 containers per vessel but that's that you know that's everything um and like just to put it in perspective that's an average per ship and they're thousands of ships like we're recording in a shipping container right now so there's each one holds a lot of stuff yeah yeah like 20 pallets ish and a pallet's like like four by four they vary um one meter Uh, by one meter yeah like 40 inches by 48 inches yeah um so i mean that that's just an insane amount of cheese in one shipping container oh my god yeah 20 of those things are stacked high um yeah right i feel like well so we'll definitely post some supplementary reading um on the show page uh, we'll post a picture of maersk is one of the large shipping lines we'll post a picture of one of their ships with all the containers on it um and and there's also an amazing podcast called containers um by alexis madrigal that is definitely worth listening to yeah 99 percent invisible has an episode yes called they partnered for madness yep yeah. they, and they partnered i think with alexis madrigal on that episode. oh i like that okay um good. So, so we basically, so we're to now where we go from Rangis to La Havre. (laughs) Yes. Um, and then it goes on this boat. And so I think it's important to say like, these boats are insane. I mean, boat is the wrong word. Ship, like vessel. Yeah. Frigate. I don't know what the right, but they're, they, they are so huge. They're, they're traveling cities essentially, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when we go to the Rockaways, I, uh, in the summer we, we sit on the beach and we look out in the ocean and we just count these vessels and they're, yeah. they're huge. And they're also, so they're I think freaks of nature and everything goes on there. And a lot of times you'll hear, um, I think you've, you know, the, you'll read about stories in the news about sometimes one of these vessels will go through a rough patch of weather or, um, something will happen and, and containers will actually fall off the vessel. That's a thing. I mean, it's pretty easy to Google image search that. So it must be true. And it's like not, uh, apparently it happens regularly enough. I did read recently about a study where, uh, uh, I can't remember exactly when it happened, but it was a container full of toys, including rubber duckies. And (laughs) they just read about Doritos. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, there, and there was one of Harley's uh, at some point recently as well. Um, but the, the rubber ducky one, they actually used the rubber duckies and they decided to turn it into a study. And they, whenever somebody found a rubber ducky, you could log it, you go to a website and it's like, don't go to this website because I don't know what's there, but it's like, I found my rubber ducky.com. Don't go uh, to that website. Just to or go with safe search on um, patterns of the well, and ocean. they would yeah, yeah and that's and they used it to to do science that they could never have done otherwise to find out ocean currents and things like that. Oh. Um, and they turned up Making all over lemonade the, all over the dam right exactly. <laughs> um, so this ship, this giant ship, when and and if you've ever seen the second season of The Wire, it's kind of like that yes. where they've got all these. They're just they they come off they go into the port there's these elaborate gantries that lift them up and put them down and they fit exactly on a truck um on like a little mac truck yeah and so they get driven on and driven off and then of course they have to um pass through so they it takes how long does it take to to come from le havre uh to like and everything comes and where does it go sorry I should so say it's that. like nine days it's in some ways it's a lot in other ways it's not because like on the sales side we need those orders like 
uh, like like three and a half weeks before that happens yeah you know, i see so like when you're when you're like planning to order if like when i ordered this wheel of Rio that we're talking about i would have had to order it roughly like four weeks ago right because there are so many right because like, it's got a they've got to find my point. wheel in the vault they've got to put it in a truck and send it to paris from switzerland that's and it, then yeah. it's got to go from paris to Rungis. And then from Rungis, it's got to get loaded into a container with other cheese that might be arriving at different times. And then it's got to go from there to Le Havre. To Le Havre. And then yes. gets on the boat. Yes. And the boat, hopefully, if the weather is good and doesn't crash into anything or <laughs> get knocked <laughs> off, runs on time, takes about nine days to get to. And it all comes on to yeah. Newark, right? Newark. Yeah. Yeah. Like every the first stop in the U.S. typically, I think. It's like um, pretty much every artisan cheese coming from Europe goes to Newark, right? It doesn't go anywhere else? Yeah, that's that's the general rule. I mean, that's why so much um, so much business is based here in terms of cheese. Importing. I mean, I guess it makes sense, but it's interesting that like it wouldn't go to like Norfolk or Boston or Boston or Baltimore or yeah. some of it's just not um, like like who wants to reinvent the wheel when it's already built, right? Like who wants to be responsible for that? It's it's a very costly. Um, just logistical sure. road yeah and complicated yeah um so when i uh you know my wheels now in in a container in newark how do i get it to my shop do i just drive to newark and pick it up <laughs> no so from there um from there it needs to clear customs which happens in a u.s customs holding house or a bonded um, customs warehouse and is that at the port or it's like anywhere and that um, that's typically off-site in this case, and you know there could be a scenario like um, like so I work at I worked at Columbia Cheese, and uh, th- uh, that's owned by a great guy named Adam Moskowitz, who um, also owns Lark and Cold Storage, which is one of these um, bonded, bonded warehouses. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So in that situation, um, trucks would deliver containers of cheese to Larkin every week. So this, I, this schedule that we're describing is um, this file schedule that happens every week. Right. right. Okay. So every week is like a file. Yeah. And then, so I guess, I mean, it makes sense, right? Cause so it's just if, like this carousel that just keeps the, um, running, yeah. the ship is only going to be in port for like a day, right? Like it's the idea yeah. is to like get things on and off as fast as possible. That's it. Yeah. So then, but if you just took everything off and waited for everything to pick everything up, this, the port would be full constantly so they so they need people like come and yeah take everything and put it somewhere else that's not at the port where it can wait to clear get it out of there let it clear customs you pay the duties once it clears that's kind of the beauty of having this bonded warehouse it gives you like cover in a way um but the the warehouse has to be tight it's got to be it's got to like live up to um, right. Like they have to get all, special like permission from the government or something to be yeah. like, I can't just open a warehouse and be like, I will take customs bonded stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So from there it's distribution, um, distributors, they pick up from this site. Yeah. And a part of that means cross docking, right? Because this, this, um, path is already paved. Cross docking sounds like something you'd find on urbandictionary.com. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, I wish I had that innocence. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have it any longer. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> I wish I could see that word differently. <clears throat> uh, yeah, uh, so the idea there is uh, like distributors are already picking up their imported stuff. So if like domestic producers can get their product to this place, then the distributors can pick I it all see. up at so, once. So like it clears customs. It probably clears like USDA or FDA or something like that as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's just to make sure that like food safety. M- you know, if everything is like 
there's no bioterrorism or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, the CBP, the Customs Border Protection Agency, like they they um they're the like feet on the ground enforcing FDA gotcha uh, regulations. Regulations. Yeah. Okay, cool. And then it goes so it's it clears customs and it clears FDA and then it goes to like a warehouse where a distributor can pick it up or it then can be typically all- the distributors pick it up. Yeah. yeah. Uh, or, or it's a third party or like uh, I could go pick it up for example, maybe depending on how much I bought. Sure. Yeah. Um, d- yeah. Just depending on kind of where you fit into the supply chain. But like, I certainly range. know I can think of examples where like I might pre-order a cheese from somewhere in Europe and then my distributor happens to be in Boston or Maine or somewhere. So it, it comes in and it goes, it'll go like, up to Boston or up to Maine and then back down to New York. Like then, which it's is the price we pay for such efficient infrastructure. Right. Well, right? it's crazy. It's so funny that you say that. Cause like in my head, that sounds like the most inefficient thing imaginable, but it actually, <laughs> right. if I'm getting stuff from other parts of the country that are going through that part place in Boston, it actually does make sense. Yeah. Because you know, there, as you think about the supply chain as a retailer, you think like, Oh my God, like I'm kind of the small fish, but then you think like, no, the cheese industry is just a fish in this sea of like all these other fishes. Right. So it, it, it means like it behooves us to play this game, like to, to live on this like the, shell game. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And to play with other industries, right? Like we have kind of have to do that to make this work at the prices we're used to paying for freight. No, oh, I actually, I, there's so much more I want to talk to you about, and I feel like we're, we're going to have to do a 201 because I felt like we did a really tight sort of top-down view of how this all works, <sighs> and I think you ended it so eloquently that like I don't want to then start start somewhere else and, and mess it up. So um, I just want to say thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. I think it's your first time on the show. It is. I've been on the other side of this glass many, many times and it's my first solo show and uh, I'm delighted to have you aboard and I think, um, gosh, uh, hopefully they're responsibly good and we'll have lots to talk about. Um, Sounds great. Later. So uh, yeah, that's it for this week's episode of Cutting the Curd on the supply chain. Um, I really appreciate you coming out and uh, hope uh, you have a lovely holiday. Thank you. You too. listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on facebook instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio heritage radio network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer more delicious place And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.